Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 31 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Rabar, who's a leading integrative gastroenterologist in Los Angeles, California. He incorporates anti-aging and functional medicine for an integrative holistic approach to digestive care. Dr. Rabar brings over 20 years of excellent technical skills in endoscopy and colonoscopy, along with a holistic integrative approach to each patient. Today, we're talking all about Lyme disease and SIBO. We talk about what it is, how you can develop or contract Lyme disease, and why it should be considered in chronic long-term cases of SIBO. Now, I've got some really exciting news to share with you. The US editions of my cookbooks are finally available. I am so thrilled to finally be able to offer them to my US and Canadian listeners. The electronic version of the cookbook is available today. You can buy a copy at SIBOcookbooks.com. The printed editions are coming in the next couple of weeks. Uh, They will be distributed locally from the US, so the postage that you will need to pay is a fraction of the price that people have had to pay um, coming from Australia. So I'm so thrilled to be able to offer all my gorgeous US and Canadian customers those books in the measurements and terminology that you are accustomed to. I'm also coming on tour to the US and I'm going to be running some really great events across the country as I launch my US cookbooks. Stay tuned because I will be announcing the live podcast recordings that I'll be doing and I would love for you to come along and join me with them. You'll get to see me and the specialist that I'm interviewing in person. I'll also be doing book signings and some really fun SIBO events in various cities across the US. If you would like to find out more about my events and be the first to know where you can purchase a ticket, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash events and I really look forward to seeing you in person when I come to the States in June and July. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Rabar. It's wonderful to be sitting here in your office in Los Angeles. Uh, And uh, I'm really looking forward to today talking to you about Lyme disease and all of the other um, factors that go along with a condition like Lyme disease and SIBO. So welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Great. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. Uh, So first of all, as I always start with my guests uh, who come onto the Healthy Gut Podcast, I really love to know why um, someone has ended up uh, specializing in gastroenterology um, with an interest in things like Lyme and uh, SIBO as well. So if you could tell my listeners a little bit about how you got to be where you are today. 
Well, uh, it's just a sense of curiosity and uh, realizing at times that uh, what we were uh, seeing in the office, I could not explain based on the knowledge base that I was carrying prior to that. Okay. Back in 2012, we had uh, several patients uh, who uh, had dysbiosis, uh, uh, both in the form of SIBO and or fungal, and uh, we were dealing with it, and they got better, but it was difficult to treat them. They did not behave like my other patients. They were a little bit easier to treat them. And eventually, somebody was smart enough that made the diagnosis a tick-borne illness for them, and I had to just ask the question, is this scenario something is going to repeat itself? Okay, so I, at that time, I went ahead and educated myself further in the diagnosis and understanding of tick-borne illnesses. And from there on, we realized that this was a quite of a common problem. Okay. So a lot of patients who uh, fall into the domain of chronicity and ongoing symptoms, they may have an underlying chronic infection that may be underlying the uh, scenario. Mm. And uh, it's interesting, um, and I was saying to you just before we started recording that uh, prior to seeing you speak last year at the um, SIBO Symposium in Portland, I'd never really heard of Lyme disease. I'd heard of ticks. We have ticks in Australia. But really my awareness of um, becoming quite unwell with tick-borne illnesses was pretty minimal, I would have to say. Where I live in Australia, it's cold and we don't really have a lot of ticks. <laughs> and not like our friends in the northern warmer sub um, areas of Australia. So Lyme disease, I think, has more of an awareness around it. It's had a bit of a positive, I don't know if positive is the right way, <laughs> way of saying it, but it's had a bit of a PR um, coverage. So there's there's exposure on Lyme disease. If you could talk about what Lyme disease is, but also more broadly in terms of tick-borne illnesses. Okay, absolutely. So uh, it's very important to get the terminology and definitions correct here. The uh, term Lyme disease in U.S., it generally refers to an acute infection uh, by Borrelia burgdorferi, which is a spirochet type of bacteria, and uh, this was first, you know, described uh, back in the 1990s uh, from the East Coast, from the area where the Lyme uh, was uh, uh, most noted. And the, from there, there was a definition of an acute Lyme presentation. Uh, generally, patients have a bullseye rash and joint pains, maybe fever, other symptoms. But the clinical scenario is one of an acute illness. However, experience now shows, uh, at least from what I have seen and my other colleagues that I've communicated with, that the acute presentation may not be present. And patients may acquire the bacteria and may go right into the chronic model and uh, continue to do well or have some mild symptoms uh, and live with it, but generally patients know something is not right. This type of condition, you know, may eventually be diagnosed as chronic Lyme, and I'm going to call it quote-unquote chronic Lyme because uh, the term chronic Lyme is not currently recognized in classical textbooks uh, and uh, ICD-10, and I do believe there's a push to eventually make a case definition for this scenario, so this will be recognized in the medical literature as well. So you're going to hear the term chronic Lyme, uh, but that's something that physicians like myself 
are end up using uh, uh, for certain chronic presentations that patient would have. And we can talk about you know, what the presentation would look like. Also, when uh, there is a, an, in, there's an infection like this, uh, I don't want to call it necessarily a tick bite. You know, there are other vectors, a variety of vectors that can uh, transmit infections. And sometimes they piggyback each other and they kind of go in, and I call them co-infections. And there's a bunch of uh, other ones. I call them companion infections. So when you keep checking, you'll find a variety of uh, uh, infections may be uh, present, or at least the footprint is there, uh, that the individual may be dealing with a variety of uh, chronic infections in their body. The clinical presentation depends on the balance of the immune system and how the immune system is dealing with these infections. Okay, And that is dictated by other factors, stress sugar consumption, alcohol, lack of sleep, uh, exposure to heavy metals, environmental toxicity, and also exposure to biotoxins, part of that being mold exposure, which may be very common in many parts of the world. And the vectors being a tick or something of that nature, they're also very common. And I think uh, with the atmosphere change and the way our climate is changing. There are some theories that these are becoming more aggressive. Okay. Um, so it doesn't really take very much for one to get exposed to these. And you don't really need a tick bite. The majority of the transmission is done by nymph, which is probably one-tenth of the size of a tick. And it's very hard to see those things. And some of these may survive a year around in different uh, temperatures. Obviously, if the temperature is temperate, is a little humid, there are trees, there's bushes, there's dirt, they love to hang out around there. So sitting on a rock, on a rock climbing experience, may be enough for one to pick up the bug. And if one has the proper genetic predisposition, especially if there are issues with detoxification, patients may end up uh, harboring these infections and presenting with a variety of chronic symptoms. What we saw, which at least in our experience has, was, a, was an eye-opener, because I've been in practice for 35 years, but it's only for the last five years that uh, I've started to see something I never saw before, that patients with these type of tick-borne or vector-borne illnesses may primarily present with digestive problems. And among those, when we looked back at our data, about 65% of the patients had SIBO, you know. And among those, we found out that the ones that they were high methane, they were particularly red flag. Indeed, if I saw somebody with a high methane, I'm going to now start to look for evidence of immune dysregulation and history that may suggest patient might have been in a proper environment to have acquired a tick-borne or vector-borne illness. It's incredibly interesting, um, particularly given that I, I hear from a lot of people that are methane-dominant chronic. Uh, they've been going through multiple rounds of SIBO treatment with either very minimal change or no change to their um, to their readings when they're doing their breath tests uh, and feeling pretty rotten. And, and I, 
And one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today is so that we can be talking about tick-borne or vector-borne illnesses so that people that are listening can uh, perhaps be thinking about this with their physician um, if they haven't yet considered something like um, a chronic infection like this. How do, if we go back to the beginning in terms of how we actually can pick up this infection, how do the ticks or the nymphs get into our system? Is it is it through a bite? Is it through consumption of um, an infected food? How does it actually work? I am not aware of uh, oral intake uh, contributing to transmission of infection. I'm not going to say it is not possible, but it's not something I've uh, come across. Uh, sexual transmission uh, sexual transmission has been described. Uh, it has also been challenged, uh, but it has been described and I think is an area of concern. Uh, in our practice, we clearly have seen what I call family clustering. And you see a husband and a wife having evidence of a vector-borne illness. Then the children have it. Well, what is the explanation? Were they exposed to the same tree and yard and pets at home? Or there was a sexual transmission, you know, between husband and wife, and also the transmission from the mother through utero to the child? I don't have all the answers, okay, but it is an area that uh, uh, is concerned. And when I see one family member, I always ask for other family members. Hmm, that's very interesting. And at the time of infection, um, can you be aware that something has happened or can it, uh, in effect, lie dormant uh, or, or not noticeable to the human um, that something is has infected them? Well, uh, 95% of our patients uh, did not recall a vector bite. 5% did, okay, and did some went back to years before, so I do remember something uh, of a, a bite. And some of the descriptions were more convincing than others, okay. And sometimes they had a picture of the event, so we, had, we could look at it. So um, um, I definitely think that some patients are aware that something happened. But interestingly, you know, whether they take antibiotics right after that or not take antibiotics after that under, a medi- under medical supervision, um, they may continue to have symptoms or be well for a while and not go through the acute model, which I was trying to explain. So when somebody harbors these infections or they have the bacteria in them, the uh, clinical scenario can go to a situation is somebody is completely asymptomatic or they may become symptomatic down the line or they may only have lab abnormalities. Okay. That's the way we have seen it in our data. Mm, that's very interesting. And I'd like to talk a little bit about mold exposure, um, particularly uh, any of us that have lived in wetter climates or humid climates can often um, experience mold uh, readily. I lived in the UK for seven years and one of the last places I lived in was full of mold. The entire basement flat was just brimming with mold. How would a mouldy environment uh, lead to a vector-borne or, or tick um, infection? 
absolutely. And first, uh, I'd like to give the credit to Dr. Schumacher, who has done a lot of the writings and the research in this area and has shared uh, his experience. Our experience has evolved over the last few years in this area. Although I do not consider myself at this juncture a mold expert, we are seeing uh, the association with tick-borne illnesses more and more. The reality is that, that the mold exposure is quite of a common problem. I mean, I think uh, uh, water damage buildings are common and uh, some people are susceptible to the exposure to the biological toxins that they uh, are uh, uh, coming from the uh, mold components. So once uh, a person is exposed to them, they may continue to harbor these fungal elements in some parts of the body. Sinuses are common areas for this. And I believe that actually in susceptible patients, uh, the presence of the mold, if it's active and there are biological toxins present, uh, it may create a chronic inflammatory condition. And in, as part of that scenario, if there's dormant Borrelia or Lyme sitting in the background, it may cause activation of that illness as well. So you could have a hodgepodge of basically two or more infections going on at the same time. And I truly believe that people who might have been stable after a tick bite for a while, and then suddenly years later, they became ill, I think there was probably a risk factor or a trigger factor. And that might have been, again, stress, high consumption of sweets, alcohol, lack of sleep, or exposure to uh, mycotoxins. And do we know how those um, stresses uh, trigger the infection to become acute? Well, it's not becoming acute. It's becoming more manifested in, still in a chronic way. Um, we know that a stress has an effect on the immune system. I mean, at the beginning, it may be associated with high cortisol level. Many of our patients, particularly women, that they have issues with recurrent yeast infection, they generally have a stress type of pattern, or at least when we see, we believe the body is stressed. So somehow, I suspect that that changes the immune system and the balance it might have created previously with the uh, other infections in place. And, uh, I mean, that would be my explanation. Mm. <laughs> and for so many of my listeners, uh, stress is is unfortunately quite a large component of their life because they're chronically unwell. Um, they're often feeling quite stressed about the fact that they are chronically unwell. They're not feeling very good. Um, they often have busy jobs. They're busy. I've got a lot of mums listening to the podcast, so they're busy women running entire families, trying to keep a career going, trying to manage their health. Stress can be a really big factor. Absolutely. And yeah. we always try to consider that, you know, as part of the equation when we speak to, to the patients. And I think it's also important to know that because the treatment protocols would require sometimes that you remove the individual from the stressful environment or uh, show them some coping skills to deal with whatever is going on. Mm. 
And I, I talk a lot around um, stress reduction uh, on many episodes of the Healthy Gut podcast um, just because stress really doesn't do us many favours <laughs> when we're dealing with such chronic stress levels. Absolutely. And, the, you know, the illness itself becomes uh, part of the stress, you know, just not feeling well, having difficulty to deal with uh, issues, financial matters, you know, and it just keeps adding up. Um, so a support system in this scenario is very, very important. Mm. Let's talk about how if somebody suspects they may have Lyme disease or, or a, um, you know, vector-borne illness, what's the first step in terms of trying to identify if indeed you have that? Well, the first thing I believe uh, it should be done is taking a good history, basically mapping out what is digestive, what is non-digestive symptoms, which one tends to predominate, how did it start, what makes it better, what makes it worse, and try to do a lifestyle modification to see if we can improve the sense of well-being. Admittedly, it's not about treating the test. It's about treating the patient. So if you work with somebody and uh, you optimize the gut function, clearing the dysbiosis uh, and correcting nutritional deficiencies, uh, and they felt better, um, I'm not sure if I want to jump into a treatment. Okay, I will continue to support the immune system. On the other hand, um, sometimes we do all of those things and still somebody may have difficulty with eating, maintaining weight, sleep issues, anxiety, thought process, cognition, memories. And those patients, they probably have more active infection, presence of cytokines, and the infection needs to be treated. And is there one test that is taken or that is conducted to say, yes, you definitely have uh, a tick-borne illness? The, in, the simple answer is no. <laughs> there is no one test. And I personally do not rely on one test. And I don't believe other physicians do. The methodology we have at this time is not perfect. They're expensive there is a lot of controversy in this area. Some labs, they do a great job, but they may not be accepted by another group of scientists. So the controversy in this area continues. And I certainly hope that these podcasts will eventually ignite some interest at the university level to bring uh, scientists into putting money and research into this. So the same way that we resolved hepatitis C to treatment with one pill, that's what I like to see to happen okay, mm. for this. Okay. Mm. We need investors and we need research. Yeah, and really there needs to be that groundswell of interest in order for that to happen, doesn't it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, let's hope this podcast can help towards that. Um, treatment, you've talked around lifestyle Um looking at how a person can modify lifestyle behaviours, perhaps re reducing stress, putting better support systems in place, um, and also looking at the um, immune system and supporting gut function. Are there any other treatment options available? Um, you know, is it a case of taking perhaps antibiotics if it's a bacterial infection? Uh, you know, what else is available to people? Uh, generally speaking, um, the uh type of treatment is dictated by the gravity of the illness and the response to the initial gut optimization and lifestyle modification. 
I would say about one out of 10 of our patients, it's a small number, but it still could be significant, they did not require further steps. Further steps to treat the infections, again, may be diversified to those that would be antibiotic-based and those that are probably not antibiotic-based. For patients that are somewhat less ill, I personally would tend to use non-antibiotic approaches, but that also depends on what we're dealing with. For example, Babesia, in our experience, is one of the more difficult ones to treat, and um, it may require more traditional treatments. Having said this, there are a variety of protocols available out there on herbal-based, which comes from the experience of very astute physicians that put it together, and some patients, I believe, benefit from that. Once there is a failure on one treatment method, which there will be somewhere along the line, one can choose another method. I've also been impressed by some of the results we have seen in our patients with treatment with ozone treatment. Even though it's not part of the standard treatment, but uh, it's something I've heard more about it, and we have had experience with a few patients. And the ozone treatment, if patients can tolerate this, uh, I believe uh, it may have some role with or without the ultraviolet uh, light treatment in treatment of these patients with vector-borne illnesses. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My listeners haven't heard about um, ozone treatment before because we haven't talked about it. Are you able to explain what it actually is? It's basically using O3 instead of O2 which uh, has uh, somewhat of an oxidizing effect. But uh, at the clinical level, it may actually function as an anti-inflammatory and as uh, anti-infectious, if you will. I'm no, by no means the expert in this here. Okay? And I think the credit goes to Dr. Robert Rowan, who did a beautiful presentation uh, at the last Lyme conference uh, there are a few physicians also in Los Angeles area who uh, uh, do provide this service. Uh, um, but the mechanism of action is, uh, may not be completely known, but I believe it's anti-infective and anti-inflammatory, if you will. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, let's talk about uh, the connection with SIBO. Is there a clear pathway in terms of why SIBO and Lyme disease or a vector-borne illness can be so interlinked and, and why in particular you're seeing such um, prominence with people that have chronic uh, or high methane um, SIBO and also Lyme disease? Well, first of all, credit goes to Dr. Mark Pimentel uh, from Cedars who uh, did a beautiful research uh, on identifying a potential cause for post-infectious IBS and presence of the uh, vinculin antibody and the model of autoimmunity that is triggered 
by a food poisoning. However, at the same time, the same group published not too long ago that the methane producers may not follow this rule. And that has been also our experience that presence of the methane may be a phenotypic manifestation, means is a way of seeing something. It may not be the primary problem. That means that the methane is there, the bacteria is very active, but it is, it is only implying that something is wrong. Okay, and we still need to learn how we got there. Okay. So the, the Vincolin antibodies and the cytotoxin uh, B that was mentioned, uh, um, uh, those markers may not uh, uh, be very helpful in patients who have methane producers. When I see methane, I usually think about immune dysregulation, so I look for a cause. Among those, the majority have had evidence of vector-borne illness. However, some patients did not. A few that did not, but they did have evidence of mycotoxins. And it appears that the mold exposure, with or without presence of other chronic infections, may also be a, pr a player in this here. Another interesting scenario to consider is a lot of patients with evidence of uh, mycotoxins or mold exposure, they may have sinus-related symptoms. They have generally chronic, low-grade sinusitis or allergic-type symptoms. It looks like they just live with it. And when we started to culture many of our patients, we noticed that they have abnormal bacteria or sometimes fungi present here. And if they have post-nasal discharge, I speculate, and I don't believe this is well published, that when they're sleeping at night, they'll be swallowing some of the post-nasal secretions, and perhaps that's feeding the gut. Because we found that a lot of our patients were very difficult to treat, and they keep showing high numbers of you know, gas-producing bacteria. They also have bad sinuses. So to help them, we may have to go you know, to a different location. Even though I'm a GI doctor, but I need to think about is the sinus a source. So we have now started to develop collaboration with a lot of our ENT physicians uh, who help us in managing that department. That's very interesting, and I'm uh, I'm thinking of myself. In fact, that uh, prior to clearing my SIBO, I had a constant nasal drip, which I put down to having had my nose broken. Yet now that my SIBO has gone, uh, I don't have it. It's very interesting, and I used to get chronic uh, sinus infections, um, and they've all cleared up as well. So there's definitely. Whether a, that one caused the other or whether it was just a correlation, uh, it is interesting. If there's food sensitivity, it may add to sinus symptoms. So definitely one can feed another. It could be a vicious cycle. Many patients who have maybe milk or gluten or you know egg protein sensitivity, they may be more congested. They produce more biofilm, more mucus, and just becomes a source of bugs to grow. You know, And I think, you know, you feed the bug, then you have more food sensitivities, more leaky gut, and you're back in a vicious cycle. Okay, At least theoretically, it's a model that I think about it. Yeah. Mm, definitely. Do you see with the lab results that people with SIBO that have high methane generally have lower numbers coming through in hydrogen? Or can they also, um, that may have a vector-borne illness, or do you find that they can also have high hydrogen, high methane 
chronic illness. Uh, any of those patterns, uh, in my opinion, would be possible. Indeed, you can have very high hydrogen, and that's by itself is an indication that is something uh, wrong. I mean, my flags would be up looking for something if I see numbers over 100 for hydrogen. And if they're both elevated, even more concern. And if they keep switching from one end to another, again, that would be another pattern that would concern me. Okay. And if we talk about methane, I generally talk about methane above 10. Okay. And the higher the methane is, the more concern at least I would have in my mind. It's interesting. I actually had somebody send through. They've just recently been diagnosed with SIBO, and I've. They said they. I have all sorts of things sent through to me, <laughs> and I was looking at their numbers, and I was like, "Wow!" And their hydrogen was, you know, 120 something at its peak. Their methane is sort of sitting into the 30s, 40s, and I was thinking, "My gosh, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on in this person's uh, small intestine when you see those kind of numbers." I know I get asked a lot by people, you know, if I had Lyme, if I have Lyme, should I be treating the Lyme? Should I be treating SIBO? What comes first? You know, is it chicken and the egg? Uh, Or do you have a clear treatment plan for when you have a SIBO and a Lyme or vector-borne illness um, patient? Um, As a general uh, principle, um, I believe the gut optimization should be done first. Nutritional replacement, correction of malabsorption, because your drugs and nutrients are going to go through that gut anyhow. And if patients have intolerances, it's going to be difficult to treat uh, the tick-borne illness. So generally speaking, I help my colleagues that they treat vector-borne illness when I refer a patient that we have done our homework with the patient to optimize the gut dysbiosis. Whatever we can do to make the patient feel better before they go into an attack mode, if you will. Having said this, occasionally I have reversed the scenario. When we felt that we could not go further, I told the patient, you know, that I think we may have to reverse the scenario. It would not be wise to do the same thing, same thing that does not work. And we may have to go and try to deal with the tick-borne illness and then come back and look at the gut dysbiosis. In our experience, the patients who were referred by Lyme and vector-borne treating doctors, only 15% among those had positive SIBO tests. So it looks like if one goes through the treatments, the SIBO may just get wiped off. Okay. That's I mean, very theoretically. interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I could see clearly if I got referral samples from, because we do get samples from Germany, from East Coast, other places, and uh, um, the number of SIBO patients were a lot less. Okay. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And my next question is around, let's think of those chronic, um, particularly methane-dominant SIBO um, patients who are on round eight, round 10, round 12 of treatment, and there's there's no real uh, improvement in either symptoms or numbers. Um, do you have any advice for them on what they could perhaps be looking at doing with their practitioner if they're just not getting anywhere? Well, after the second or third round, I believe if uh, I'm not seeing eradication, I'm not sure if I want to 
just come up with another round of treatment because the chances are that that patient would have a recurrence. Okay, you may be able to eradicate, but they may have a recurrence. Uh, whether I want to keep treating them, it depends on the degree of s symptoms that they have. If they're highly symptomatic, uh, I may want to treat them again and see if I can give them some relief. Uh, sometimes I see high methane and patients have very little symptoms, and this is one of the challenges that uh, um, the correlation to the symptoms is not one-to-one, -one, and it may be more that the presence of the methane is a biomarker of something being wrong. Mm. Yeah, and so it's really about playing private investigator and in your in your own body. That's and right. Yeah. Looking at what else is happening. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What are the um, treatments that you like to use when it comes to uh, SIBO treatments? I mean, the standard treatments are out there. I mean, uh, we also do some alternative uh, treatments, which is uh, my modification of what uh, I've seen from the literature. Um, I mean, you can call it uh, Rabar's way of doing it. It's not adequately published, so I don't know to what detail I want to go into that. Uh, but we generally start with traditional treatments, and I do give both options to the patients. Uh, I mean, what is available out there now, it is the rifaximin with or without neomycin. Generally, if uh, there is um, um, methane present, and if we suspect a fungal element I may also use an antifungal concurrently. Okay. I generally do not use probiotics at the beginning. As we get later on, we may introduce probiotics cautiously. And uh, again, lifestyle modifications. Alcohol is a risk factor for recurrence. That has been well demonstrated. Uh, uh, slow eating habits, uh, avoidance of eating and or drinking, in my opinion, within two to three hours before going to bed. Using prokinetics, you know, and elemental diet, these are all options out there. Okay. It was interesting. I was, uh, before meeting with you today, I was um, conducting an interview with Dr. Lisa Shaver, and one of the things we were talking yes, about um, was around slowing down our eating. And one thing that I learned to do uh, um, th through my own process of recovering was to slow down f eating because I'd been a speed eater for most of my life and uh, I can't tell you the difference that that made just that simple act of slowing down it had an enormous impact on um, how I felt how I digested my food and uh, absolutely okay. yeah cheap and easy yes <laughs> one of the <laughs> freest and easiest things I did in that whole treatment process <laughs> and another one that I always tell my patients is uh, hot water okay you know I think uh, the heat actually to me activates the enzymes Okay, have a soup or broth or hot water or light-colored tea with your meal as opposed to cold water, okay, in a small amounts. And uh, I think you will see additional benefits from that. And is that to be consumed whilst eating, so along with the food? Or? Absolutely, with okay. the food, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's another free thing to try. Absolutely. <laughs> um, there is um, some debate around whether Lyme disease or, or even really tick-borne illnesses exist. And just very recently in Australia, uh, we have a debate show that um, airs late at night and there was a whole panel of uh, specialists and, and people debating the existence of tick-borne illnesses in Australia. 
with certain um, physicians saying it does not exist. Lyme disease does not exist and, uh, you know, these illnesses that you claim simply do not exist. What's your advice to someone who's listening that might be in a country like mine where it really isn't recognised, yet they feel that perhaps that they might even remember an incident or they feel that this is really resonating, um, this podcast today, and they'd like to uh, explore it further, but they're, they're meeting with resistance. Do you have any advice for them on what they could do? Um, it is hard for me to answer that question. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm in the proper position. Um, I'm hoping that uh, from what we share, you know, somebody attention will come forward and they're willing to do additional research in this. Okay, I mean, my purpose of doing all of this would be to see if we can ignite, uh, you know, somebody's interest to take on the project and say, look, we do need to investigate this. Uh, the reality is that, I mean, this is the story of the big elephant okay, in the room. And the controversy goes, you know, across the continents. But I don't think people are stupid. You know, the f- patients we have seen in the office are extremely intelligent, s- extremely methodical. And there's a huge amount of energy behind these people trying to express their concern. Uh, I think it's worth for the authorities to consider um, in at least listening to this and see what is it needs to be done to say yay or nay. Mm. Um, and just in terms of uh, for people listening to understand whether they might have been at risk um, for infection, what are um, some common tick uh, areas? Uh, you did mention trees and you said that sitting on a rock, if you're rock climbing, might also put you at risk. Are there any other um, aspects that people should be mindful of where they could pick up an infection? Uh, first of all, in our experience, uh, the European uh, genes, okay, uh, to me, it's a source of susceptibility. It's just an observation. We're not trying to be judgmental. Okay, almost eighty percent of our patients have been uh, Caucasian females. So uh, I'm a little bit concerned when I see a patient of that uh, background. The second thing is that this is really an illness for the m- most part of people who are outdoor, athletic, people who are nature oriented. They like hiking, camping. Being outdoor, they like the nature. I do too. Okay, and if we have the proper genetic predisposition, then we're susceptible to to this. And uh, one has to take extreme precautions when you're outdoor nowadays. If you have an astronaut suit, put it on and zip it up. Okay, or read some guidelines online as how you can actually prevent uh, exposure to these bugs. Okay. Outdoor activity, bushes, trees, grass, you know, these are the areas where they are. And can we see them? Uh, you did talk about the nymphs, which I'd imagine are very small, but can are they visible to the naked eye? The nymphs, I think they're very difficult to see. Okay. I mean, I think the majority of the time, that's the problem. I mean, um, ticks you can see, but... Um, uh, you know, I've had patients who reported to me they had one on their thigh and they had a long pants on and they saw it at night. Well, how did it get there? It must have been crawling up, you know. Apparently, it could be very subtle. Mm. 
I hope I give you your answer. Yeah. <laughs> Lots to think about. And it's funny, in Australia, we talk about dogs getting bitten by ticks, but we never, dogs and cats, and how sick they can get. But there's nothing really about how sick humans can get with tick bites. Uh, well, I don't know why that is. <laughs> well, first of all, let me make a quick comment here. Dogs, they do get Lyme disease, right? And glomerulonephritis is actually one of the major manifestations in dogs, and it kills. Okay, So a dog with a kidney disease is suspicious. If I had to have a dog, I prefer not a black dog because I would never see the tick on them. Okay, I would also not invite the dog to come to the bed because it makes it challenging. If your dog goes outside, I think it would be you know, it would be helpful if they don't run into the bushes and where the dirty areas are, if you will. If you have grass, perhaps you could change it to artificial if it's a small area. And cats are more dangerous because you don't need ticks with cats. You need fleas. And fleas, they transmit particularly Bartonella, and it's a lot more contagious than the, uh, Borrelia. Okay. A lot more contagious. And the two can mimic each other. So interesting, and and for people like myself who, you know, are real dog and cat people, and, and I'm just thinking of um, when I had a dog and a cat, when you, to stop the dog from rolling around, you know, as soon as you wash the dog, out they go and roll around in dirt and want to make themselves dirty again, and uh, don't and bring them in. Yeah, <laughs> wash them before they come in. Can, can well, our my dog and cat slept in bed with me when I was growing up, and I'm just thinking of all the possible exposures. But you I look healthy, so I'm not so worried. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> though I am a risk factor. I'm Caucasian. I from um, my bloodline is all European, and I'm female, so it puts me at risk. But I'm I'm in pretty good health these my days. My apologies. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> didn't mean it in a bad way. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Rabar, it's been so interesting talking to you today about um, Lyme disease, tick-borne illnesses, vector-borne illnesses, and SIBO. Uh, if people who are listening to the podcast would like to reach out and connect with you, um, how best can they do that? The best thing to do is to send a brief email to our general email box. If we can answer it, we will try to do that. Lovely, and I'll uh, have that link in the show notes. Dr. Rabar, it's been wonderful to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. Thank you so much for inviting me. really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Rabar. I know I found it fascinating talking to him when I was in LA recently. If you would like to access the full transcript of the show or the show notes or any links mentioned in today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Lyme and that's spelled L-Y-M-E. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on iTunes. I love hearing your feedback and do share it with any friends or family that you know who may either have Lyme disease or SIBO. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. We're just under The Healthy Gut. And don't forget that you can grab your very own US edition of the SIBO cookbooks 
from my website, SiboCookbooks.com. And the US editions are available in electronic form at the moment and the printed copies are coming very, very shortly. I'm just so excited to get them out to you. So head to SiboCookbooks.com to either purchase the electronic copy now or you can put your name and details down so that I can tell you when the printed books become available. And I am coming on tour to the US. I can't wait to come back over and see all of your gorgeous, lovely faces. I'll be touring around the country and I'll be putting on plenty of SIBO events for the SIBO patient, as well as doing some really fun live podcast recordings and really having a great time. And I really hope to meet so many of my gorgeous listeners as possible. I'll also be launching the US editions of my cookbook, so you can always come and meet me, grab a copy and I'll sign it for you. If you would like to stay in the loop for what my events um, will be, where they will be and the dates and how you can grab a ticket to any of them, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash events and just put your name and email address down and I will let you know as soon as the plans are finalised. I look forward to seeing you in the States. Coming up on next week's show, I'm joined by Dr. Anthony Hobson. And Dr. Hobson is my first British gastro specialist. I'm so excited to have him come onto the show. We talk all about functional gastroenterology and we look at things like motility and the migrating motor complex, the role that stress plays on the function of the digestive system and why we need to be looking at what's going on further upstream and further downstream as well. So I hope you enjoy next week's episode with Dr. Anthony Hobson. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production editing and original music score of this podcast to hear more of belinda's music head to soundcloud.com forward slash belinda coombs the healthy gut podcast is a production of the healthy gut thanks for listening hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.